back with the bank back like we never left episode nine of the scoreboard podcast is here massive shout out to everybody tuning in week in week out to listen to us to listen to our hot takes and maybe sometimes cold takes too I don't know why I'm talking like this, but I want to sound like a gangster. But did I say no fits me? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome once again. This is the Scoreboard Podcast, and uh, let's go back to regular programming. My name is Ola Olua, and uh, I'm sure you must have heard Masha's voice. Hello, Masha. Yeah, good morning, Ola Olua. And just like you said, I think I'm also in a kind of cheapy mood. And <laughs> kind of the way the last conversation ended, I hope it continues on because it will make for good listening. And like I always say, I hope the listeners enjoyed listening to this as much as we enjoy talking about it all right straight up mental health has become something very very huge right now i think it's the lockdown that really caused all of it because from late last year till now mental health has become a big deal but we're talking mental health as it relates to sports we're talking mental health and we're talking about what the athletes face in this era. You must have heard about Simon Biles. You can talk about the racism issue on social media. You must have heard about Neyman recently saying the 2022 World Cup might be his last outing for the Brazilian national team. He cited mental health too. He said when things are going well, People don't really even give him the kudos. But when things go wrong, he's always at the receiving end. And he said he can no longer continue to handle all of those things. And he has said, after the 2022 World Cup, he might just be calling it squids. I think majority of the fans have failed to realize that these guys are human. While talking about that, let's put Naomi Osaka into perspective too. She's uh, also had her own fair share of the mental health issue. And recently, we've been seeing something athletes coming out to probably apologize after matches or after games or after their events we'll talk extensively about this on this episode how to be an athlete successful athletes considering this uh, mental health situation but Marshall, let me have your take about it some are saying some athletes are hiding under it to just want to justify their non-competitive ability what do you say to this well firstly Firstly, mental health is not uh, something to be joked with. I mean, we've seen a lot of athletes fall into depression during uh, their playing days and it's affected uh, their game a whole lot. And we've also seen a lot of athletes fall into depression after playing, you know, when they miss that thrill and they miss that feeling of having a routine, you know, going out, training, playing on the weekends and that routine. And when they retire, they feel empty because that's all they've dedicated their lives to. And, you know, at 40, they, they have nothing to do. And, you know, that's why some go back to coaching, some go into punditry, some just do various other things to keep themselves busy. And so the topic of mental health is, is not something to be joked about. But the truth is that recently it has become more of an escape route for a lot of athletes because they know that no one wants to take mental health like a joke. Everyone wants to take it seriously. So whenever there's anything wrong, they often either play the mental health card or they just write something really lengthy on their various social media accounts and just let it fly. And with more and more occurrence of that, it begs the question, what exactly is the end game? Now, as is usual, with anything good, there are always going to be bad things too. So when is it going to be too much, both from the fans, 
and from the players. And we can't deny the fact that there has been a lot of abuses thrown at players time and again. I mean, we know how many times our players have complained on social media about how they have felt abused or how they have felt denigrated by their own fans, you know, probably for making a mistake, scoring an own goal or, you know, various other things across our various other fields, various other sports. And it has now become a trend. And one thing that continues to exacerbate these things is that fans see it as an easy outlet for their anger. And that's why we don't really hear a lot about these things in in a lot of other leagues, you know, like the NBA, for instance. I mean, the NBA, I think, would be the league that has the highest population of black players. I mean, sporting league now, aside from uh, leagues in Africa and, and the rest, I think the NBA and maybe then the NFL, because it's in America and we have a lot of black guys in those sports. And the kind of racist abuse they get is kind of minute as compared to others in Europe. So that's an aside. And then secondly, the kind of mental health talks that they get is not really large compared to others. Now, they're also suffering from their own things, but then they don't have it as an outlet where after every bad performance, they come out on social media. And I think what also continues to fool this is because they've noticed, that, I mean, other professionals now have noticed that whenever they have a bad game, whenever someone has a bad game, instead of the person getting criticized, the person comes out, writes a lengthy apology, you know, uses black background, uses golden fonts. The players don't get criticized. The media doesn't really hamper on the player that much. And everyone is thinking, hold on, this guy has had a game that's an outlet for him why don't i try the same thing why don't i go the same route and it has become a thing that whenever there's a loss from a player or from an athlete everyone is just waiting for the inevitable lengthy post on social media and i mean the whole rashford jokes are now commonplace you know when uh Deontay Wilder released his lengthy post five days after getting beat up mercilessly by tyson fury you know he came up with a very lengthy thing and second that we're already commenting yeah i'm sure it was rashford that drafted that you know there was when bruno also lost the late late penalty against that villa drafted something really lengthy and we're like yeah thanks for rashford thanks to rashford for help me out on that one so you know it has become a thing that far from being effective you know to reduce the ill will reduce the tension between players and fans it has even caused more tension because it's now become like i said earlier an outlet and we're now seeing a lot a lot of ex-players you know complaining about it like stop taking the easy way out you don't need to come out on social media and apologize for every bad game you have what if you have 38 bad games are we going to be expecting 38 posts in a row from you where all you do is complain, all you do is apologize and say, I'll improve, I'll be better. It doesn't work that way. Owning up is one thing, but, you know, constantly making it more like a comms thing, a PR thing. Okay, how do we spin this? Gary Neville uh, stated it very clearly, and I think he wrote it very beautifully when he said that players should change from, or disease from, you know, after every bad game, they go to their comms team and their PRT and say, okay, I, I just had a bad game, how do I spin this my way? And it's it's already becoming kind of like a bad joke. You know, it reminds me of when, I'm struggling to remember who, who the player was now, whether it was Christian Benteke, but I don't think it was Benteke. I think the player was in Sunderland back then. And the PR team, the Sunderland PR team, sent they had, they had just lost a game you know, by a, a lot of scores. And then the PR team sent him this tweet and they, they sent him a message and said, can you tweet something like, you know, and then they put what he was supposed to tweet in comms or like in double quotations. And guess what yeah. he did? He copied the whole thing 
and posted it Including on his Twitter. The, can you tweet something like Including this? Including the can you tweet something like this? Yeah, you know? yeah I think I so remember that just, incident too. So. Yeah, so it's just become a PR thing, not that it comes from the heart, not like they actually mean it. It's just we had a bad game. You see all of them tweeting the same thing. Thanks for the three points. We're glad to have it. We move on of COYB, COY, whatever the club they own or support, you know. So it's not really like these things are coming from the players. You know, they have most of them often have social media handlers. And so the social media handler just says, oh, it's a bad game. It's with this one. If it's a good game, it's with this one. It's not really been something that is coming from their heart. And so when they come up with the whole mental health thing, it becomes even more difficult for fans to take them serious. Because, you know, when the first set of people did it, it was like, okay, these guys are opening up. These guys are talking about their woes. I mean, we saw Simon Biles, we saw Naomi Osaka. And it became a thing of, okay, these guys are actually going through a lot of problems. They're not just circles, you know, they're not here for entertainment. They are here to do a living or to make a living and also entertain us. And then from the first set of people, it now became a thing. It became a norm. And that is what has kind of reduced the influence or the, the ability of those messages to pass the message, if you get what I'm saying. Because that has become more frequent more frequent exactly you know everybody is just throwing the card around regardless of why and to be quite fair with you a lot of players are actually going through these things right but then they don't always see them after they've just done something great after they've done something great they talk about themselves they talk about how happy they are they talk about how good they are they talk about how they feel they should have done this i mean when players are in the concession or when players are in competition for probably a large award or something that could really mean a lot for their careers, they don't talk about how they feel bad or how they've suffered a lot. They often talk about their own self, how they've won this, how they've won that, how they've done this, how they've done that. But then when it's not going their way, when it's a bad time, they often just use that one as an easy way out. I mean, if you're taking the praises, when you're doing good. I mean, for a sports person, you should be able to take it on when you're playing bad. And I was re-watching uh, The Last Dance documentary a few weeks back and I got to, I, was, I think I was on the third episode when, I think it was an episode about Dennis Rodman. And Dennis Rodman said, you know, playing basketball is easy. You know, he could play basketball for free. But the reason why they pay him that much is all of the BS that comes with it, you know? So he feels like the reason why he's been paid that much is not because he's the best rebounder or the best defensive player in the league at the time. Of course he was, but he said he could have played for free. I mean, these guys play pick-up ball every, every summer a lot of times. But he said the reason why they pay him that much is because of the extra BS that comes with it. And that is what fans think. You're getting paid a lot, you should not be complaining. Yes, I understand that they are humans, but then Part of what comes with being a professional is that if you're going to be getting the praise when you're doing good, you should be ready to take it on the chin when you're not doing good. And as, as much as doing. that also comes with the everyday life too. I mean, if you're working in the office, your boss would come sometime and yell at you for not doing something right. And we don't come out to write on the social media that, okay, exactly. this and that. But at the same time too, we should also take it seriously. The fact that a lot of people are doing it doesn't mean it's an escape route just as you think that it to be. 
I'm not, no, 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 no. I'm not saying it's an escape route for everybody, right? Like I said, a lot of people are suffering from it, but more and more, it has become an easy way out. And I'm not talking about it just from the mental health prism. I mean, there are a lot of athletes that come out after games and a very few of them talk, talk about mental health. They just talk about, you know, the apology thing, you know, and that is the angle I am looking at it from, you know, mental health, he is not is not uh, something to joke about. I mean, we all know what happened with Tyson Fury from 2015. He was the undisputed a heavyweight champion, and then he stopped fighting, slipped into depression, went into drugs, and he immediately look at Adriano too. Yeah, Adriano, who also suffered from mental health shortly after he lost his dad and and a lot of that. What I am talking about is that players who have taken it all on when they were doing very, very well. The only thing about mental health is that mental health does not just happen in a day. It does not start and stop suddenly. You know, it's an accumulation of things. And that's why for Naomi Osaka, it was pertinent that she was even talking about it even when she was still on a high. Because when she was winning, she talked about it. When she was losing, she talked about it. So it's not like something that's just out of the blue and then it's almost like when they're having a bad rot and then they just use it but then it's something that has been consistent and that's why for someone like Adriano who was just otherworldly and then immediately his performances dropped he was nowhere near the level he was performing at you know there are questions to be asked and that's where the whole talk of could this guy could be could this guy be going through a lot of things started uh, coming up you understand so that's different from someone who just scored probably a hat-trick in the last game and then the previous game he had a dot which is perfectly understandable nobody's a machine you're not supposed to be perfect for 38 game days you understand that so coming up with that a week after having a masterful performance where everyone healed uh, the player it can look a bit sketchy and that is why like i said earlier i'm not just coming at it from the angle of mental health but I'm coming at it from the angle of the apologies because the apologies always happen almost after every bad game. You know, nobody apologizes for having a good game. They're taking the accolades, they're taking the glory. But then when there is a bad game, I mean, it's only proper to come up and own it. It doesn't have to come up from the whole apology thing. We had a bad game, we move on. There is it doesn't even need to be said, it doesn't even need to be tweeted, it doesn't even be posted on Instagram or anything. It's just owning up to it and then letting the next few games explain that you are really, really sorry. Because of what use is it when a player tweets today, sorry we had a bad game. The next game, sorry we had a bad game, we promise we'll apologize. The third game, sorry we had a bad game, we'll apologize. Then of what use is the apology because it's no longer becoming an action, it's not becoming an exercise where it's just after every bad game, flip the tweet and send it. After every bad game, flip the tweet and send it. Which is the angle I am coming at it from. For players like Naomi Osaka, they've been talking about it for a very, very long time. I mean, Tyson Fury was, like I said earlier, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world when he was uh, suffering depression. And he talked about it before he came back on this uh, trilogy with Deontay Wilder and he was very, very successful with it. So that is the difference between people who throw the card around and people who are really going through this thing. And it is something to be joked with, not something to be uh, thrown around. But then I feel for some players, seeing how it has kind of shielded 
they are fellow pros and they feel like they can just use it whenever they like or wherever they like and that is personally what i have been talking let's talk about it just side by side with racism because looking at what happened for england at the euros and everything that followed i was like it is really unnecessary the messages sancho rashford and bukayo saka having to do all of that the england official twitter handle kept tweeting about it every time every time till recently when saka played his first game they they had a standing ovation for him and you look at it it sort of gave these guys good pr even despite losing it made it look like okay you can you can lose and still get the parts in the back good they are not supposed to be condemned but at the same time they are not the first person to lose the final or to lose a penalty in the final a lot of people have done it in the past and I'm sure two years from now it will still happen. Three years from now it will still happen. So I really do understand what the force is about them losing and getting all of those parts on the back. Because I see that part in the back personally. Oh well, it, it's 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 funny because it's coming into the tournament. England were no one of the favorites, and getting to the final in itself was a huge. I don't want to use the word motivation was 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 a huge was really unexpected let me just say and flashback to the round of 16s someone else lost a penalty a decisive penalty for their nation and that nation was actually one of the favorites heading into the euros and that player was not an old pro young player 20 something 22 to be precise did that player come in with high expectations yes did the player have a bad tournament yes did the player lose the penalty that sent his nation crashing out of the euros yes for for a wonder kid who has been famed for scoring that that did not even get a goal at the tournament you, you understand was the player was the player someone that had been projected to have a really really good tournament falling on from an equally good world cup yes the player is Kylian mbappe and after the, the, the French exited the, the Euros, you know, he posted on his social media, he was sorry, uh, credited the Swiss for doing a good job. And that was the last I heard of it. I don't remember the French tweeting anything. I don't remember PSG tweeting anything. I mean, shortly after the whole thing, a lot of would have probably sent messages, you know, send the heart emoji and all of that. But I think that was like the first and the last time. And that's why I said it's not really something we see happen in a lot of other leagues. It's something we really see happen in England. And that's because of the PR it continues to get. I mean, the English don't have as many black players as the French do. And I don't really seem to remember the French, you know, putting, uh, always facing torrents of racist abuse whenever they play in any nation or whenever they play in any qualifier. It's something that we only see happen when it's the English. And you have to ask yourself, why? And the very simple answer is, if you keep talking about something, then the bad guys will continue to think, oh, if you want to get a little bit of attention, what do we do? We do what they're talking about. And that's why at times when people talk about something, we just say, just ignore it. You know, when you continue to push it, it continues to give added motivation. It continues to give the other people uh, something to think, they're important. And in every letter of the word, they're not. They're not. And that's just the truth. Because you look at what's happening with, like you rightly said, with Bukayo Saka, with 
Marcos Rashford, we did in Sancho. After they lost the penalty, you know, they were all like pariahs. And then everyone went on their Instagram, you know, their last few posts had some really, really bad emojis being said there. You know, because they knew it was going to be picked up by the media, because they knew it was going to be talked about, because they knew the players themselves were going to see it, because they knew the players themselves were going to send a lengthy apology, you know, because they knew it to be the talk of the town, you know. So it now had become like a counterbalance from the English FA, from the English media, from everybody just to say, yeah, we love you, the love of our the hate. And it's making me wonder, wait, what exactly are we are we doing here? I mean, does everything have to be a gigantic PR machine? It doesn't. I mean, far from it, you know? And that is why, like I was saying earlier, it has become more like an easy way out. Granted, this player suffered torrents of racist abuse, which was unwarranted, which was totally unnecessary. But have you ever wondered why it's almost often always English black players I suffer from these things. But like I said, the French also have black players. There are black players playing in other leagues. I mean, in the Italian Serie A. And there was even a time when it was like the Italian Serie A were filmed for these kind of things, you know, when there would be chants. Go to these players' social media pages and you, you rarely see anything uh, remotely racist or as much as you see it for the, uh, for the English players, you know. So it's because the English media keeps talking about it, you know. You're giving attention to these people and people who are trolls, they feed on one thing, they feed on attention. If trolls don't get attention, then there's nothing that's going to happen. Because the funny thing about this whole troll thing is that the more it happens, the more people become aware of it and the more people find a way to outlet their hate. Because it's almost like social media is a heaven for those guys, you know. They want to outlet their hate. They don't know how to outlet it. They don't know where to outlet it. They don't know who to outlet it on. They just go on social media. They find an easy target and then they pick on them because they know these are the ones that will get talked about. These are the ones that would get people angry, you know. And if if I'm angry, I don't want to be the only one angry. I want everyone else to be angry. I want everyone else to feel it. And that's what they do. But if nobody talks about it, if nobody gives two cents, I mean, the whole world will move on. It's enough to take the knee. I mean, black players themselves are coming out and saying, look, the whole take the knee thing before every game is becoming an exercise in futility because people are not talking about it. People already see it as a match ritual. We started watching the EPL last season. The first thing you would think is that the UCL's version of playing the Champions League format or playing the Champions League song is the Premier League's version of taking a kneel before games, which honestly isn't. And it has already driven away. I was speaking with a group of friends a couple of weeks back and we're talking about this knee thing. And it has just become an exercise in futility, to be precise. And honestly, it's, it's not good enough. It needs to change, but then at what point do we realize this is just PR machine in overdrive and, and nothing more? You know, players will not always be at the top of their games. Players will not always perform at 100%. Players will not always be the best on the pitch. I mean, it's okay to put in your best and not be the best player on the pitch. I mean, Ronaldo and Lionel Messi face themselves a lot of times and Messi didn't win all of the games, Ronaldo didn't win all of the games, not because they were not good, but then the other person was just better on the pitch. It doesn't always have to be because you were not good enough. It doesn't always have to be because players were somewhat underperforming. Maybe give credit to the winner because the winner was clearly uh, the better person. I mean, Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury, four, three times. Fury, for me, won all. 
it's not because Don Tawada is not good enough. I mean, Don Tawada has knocked out a lot of people with the highest knockout percentage in boxing history. So it's not like Don Tawada is not good enough, but he met his match and he met someone who was even more than a match for him. So I don't know why people always have to apologize for, you know, if you had a bad game, we know you, you have this kind of standard and didn't perform as well as you have, then that's a bad game. But then if it's someone who was clearly better, there's really no, no, really, no reason to apologize. After the Spaniards lost the UEFA Nations League final, the yeah UEFA Nations League final, I wasn't seeing lengthy posts on their social media about how they were sorry or how they apologized. I mean, people about Karim Benzema goal. That was even as an opponent, they would have to applaud because he was just better with that goal. So it's not because or oh, somehow we underperformed or somehow we're not up to scratch. No. So I don't know the, the reason or the rationale behind the whole let's always apologize thing. Let's always and it fuels the trolls. It fuels the abuse and it fuels the whole mental health thing because it's it continues to roll. You know, it's like rolling a boulder down a steep slope. You know, it continues to add more and more grains and it continues to accrete and become larger. So one little thing that seems like it's not much, but then they add this, they add this, they add this, they add that, and then it becomes a, a full-blown story and then Every player now, or every fan who is in the stadium now has to applaud, now has to stand up and applaud whenever Saka is entering the game because he has just been knighted. Or oh, I mean, did I miss the knighting ceremony? I mean, let's just let's just move on. <laughs> All right, Masha. Now you mentioned because if anything or everything you just said is anything to go by, there are genuine guys who are actually suffering mental health. And there are guys who are just using apologies and every other thing as a PR machine to just get the sympathy of the fans. I know there is no mechanism to get all of this, but don't you think this will rub off or rob the fans of the best performers in the game? I'm talking mental health now. Look at Nami Osaka, good girl, but she's going through a lot. Simon Bowes in the middle of the competition had to say, okay, I'm not doing it again. Although she came back and she still wants something. Look at Neymar now saying after 2022, he probably might not just be doing it because he's, uh, he, can't, he's, he can't cope any longer. Now, as much as we want to say, stardom entails a lot of things. It entails you having to deal with trolls. Would you say Despite competing at the top level for a couple of years, these guys are still not ready, especially as it concerns handling trolls or the criticism that comes with the territory. Or you'd probably suggest that professional athletes stay away from the social media, maybe, and get pure love on the streets. <laughs> Man, that, that last part was funny because, you know, social media has elevated a lot of players. It has taken players from being unknowns to world beaters i mean one of the fastest ways to discover a player is the internet and that's just the truth you know telling players to stay away from social media is like telling bulk of players to stay away from their source of revenue i mean ronaldo makes more money on social media than he makes playing on the pitch you know so he's definitely not going to do that uh federal makes more money from endorsement than he does from making uh, from playing tennis the endorsements give them even more money and how do you endorse an athlete or how do you endorse uh, a sponsor if you're not playing 
using your social media handle you have a lot of people following you have a lot of people who see your posts you have a lot of people who interact who relate i mean it's not rocket science that social media is definitely going to be an outlet for most of them and that is where they start to differ because for some people they leave their social media accounts entirely in the hands of handlers you know they have a management team and then they just focus on their own game and there are some players too who just use social media sparingly you know they use social media but then when they are getting to the latter stage of a competition or the tournament they just stay away from social media or when the season is getting to the to the thick end of the season they stay away from social media i mean regular listeners of the show know that i love to uh, talk about other sports or american sports a good example is yanis during the playoffs yanis doesn't tweet at all he doesn't go on social media he goes on a social media blackout from the start of the playoffs till the end of the playoffs whether i get eliminated in the second round whether i get eliminated in the conference finals doesn't go on social media because he doesn't want any other thing to distract from his own game you know and that's just the way he works so telling players to stay from social media yeah it might be a good thing when they are trying to focus on the tournament or when they're trying to focus for a competition but for the length of season or length of a career i mean that might be too difficult and if you remember also when you were talking about paul pogba after the 2018 world cup he said one of the things that he felt helped pogba was that pogba was in a confined environment for a whole month and it helped him focus it helped him understand his game it helped him channel all of his energy and all of his abilities into just playing football you know not wondering about taking a rolls royce to go see a stormzy concert or going to bat his hair or going to dance on whatever it is but because they were all together they were all in one place there was really no external distractions and he said that was one of the things he felt helped help up at the world cup back in 2018 so that is one thing but we cannot also deny the fact that right now players have a larger leash than their priors because the social media they have direct access to the fans they don't always have to go on an interview to hear from or to speak to the fans or they don't always have to go on the streets you know to hear what the fans are saying and the funny thing about it is it's always a very very minuscule percentage of the population but then if you tell people 10 things if nine were good and one was bad they would dwell on the one bad than the nine good and that's just the way we humans are wired you know we love perfection and any bleach any or any glitch any bleep we don't like to see it at all you know we love the accolades we, we love the accolades we don't want anything that would take away from it away from social media forever that is almost impossible very very impossible we have to finish it ourselves as you have said staying out of social media is not is out of the conversation so you suggested staying out for a particular time which i feel might be working on the long run but those people who have decided to stay off social media too it's not like they are not enjoying life it's not like uh life has not been fair to them life has been good to them too so we can't continue to have issues like this every time and uh not talk about it i understand the social media companies themselves too they are not doing as much as you'd expect them to do in curbing issues like this, which I feel much needs to be done. Let's move away from this matter. Let's talk about Newcastle. We did a bit last week. Maybe did I call that a bit? No, that's not a bit. We did a lot last week talking about Newcastle. <laughs> that that formed the bulk of our conversation last week, Newcastle. But there's a twist to the conversation, and the twist is about who takes over right now. A lot of names. 
Zinedine Zidane, Antonio Conte, Brendan Rogers, Steven Gerrard, who has even refused to rule himself out of the conversation. Personally, I feel anybody who is taking over right now would have a lot to say about the future of that club when Chelsea took this same step. And a lot of people are even making it look like they should follow the Chelsea templates because it has really delivered sustained success. I really don't understand what they are saying, especially when you have the certain man sitting in the picture. But of all these managers, I'm sure it's only Antonio Conte that has really tasted sustained success at the highest level. Well, Steve Bruce is still in charge right now, as against what we're hearing that he won't even be in charge for their next game, but he's still in charge right now. So what should be happening footballing-wise right now, especially when it comes to the appointment of coaches, Marshall? Well, I think last week when we were talking about uh, the various managerial appointments they could get and how it's not just enough to get good players, but also mix it with an elite manager. And like you said, Antonio Conte is out of a job. He could really be one for them. Steven Gerrard, although he's in a job, you know, he has not really managed at the highest of levels. Yeah, he has won Premiership with Rangers, the Scottish Premiership. And it's, it's something that he could really use uh, to launch his career. But then how many players are going to look at working under Steven Gerrard and working at Newcastle? So it's not enough to just have money. There should also be a sound managerial appointment. And, and that's where I think someone like an Antonio Conte could come in because Antonio Conte has history of not really caring too much about where the job is. I mean, he started out at Bari, a Serie B club, and then Juventus were at one of their worst times. I mean, they were seventh the year prior, and then he came and he took the job. Chelsea were also suffering. You know, before Antonio Conte came, I think they were 10th in the league. And then Inter Milan, we all know what's been going on uh, with Inter Milan. For years, they had not won anything. For years, they were suffering, you know, not really having a stable direction. But then money came in through Steven Zhang and the student group. And then he saw the potential, decided to uh, go on board. Now, things that Newcastle could also do could be hiring a solid sporting director, providing the sporting director with money and leaving the rest in the sporting director's hands. Because that is one mistake they would make if they do not start with appointing a sporting director first and then they appoint a coach first. Because if you appoint a coach now and a sporting director later, what happens if both of them have issues? Sporting directors are not really big names, quote unquote. You know, they are the underground guys that unless they have become too good at their job, we can't ignore them kind of guys, but they are often just in the background doing work and getting things done. And that is what I think for Newcastle right now, they have limitless pockets. They, they, are, the, they are the sporting director's dream because they have the money to fund whatever purchase he wants to make, whatever acquisition he wants to make. But if they don't have it all planned, if they don't have it all arranged, and that's why I think I give credit to Sheikh Mansour for what he did with Manchester City. Chiki Begiristein and Ferran Soriano, they are two very key important members of the uh, City football group. They were at Barcelona and they were acquired by Manchester City to help push the way they wanted to play and ultimately lay the groundwork for a kind of La Masia-like development before they ultimately ended in acquiring the, the ultimate manager himself, Pep Guardiola. 
and that is what Newcastle have to do. You know, it's not just about hiring the flashy names. It's not about hiring the newest guy in town, throwing money at him, but having a groundwork. So, so I think for Newcastle, hiring a sporting director should refresh that from a sporting director or a director of football, and then it, it probably a head scout, you know. If they have someone like Ralph Franknick as the sporting director or director of football, and they have someone like Luis Campos as the head of the scouting team, or they have someone like, who knows, it's famous Lintat. If you have a sporting director who has an idea, a very concrete one of what he wants, getting a manager to buy into his vision and who knows that there's money to be spent would not be a problem and you know at times we we in the media and we as fans we often tend to fall into this trap of always expecting like a big name manager it doesn't have to be a big name manager i mean look at julian nagel's man when offenheim took the point on him he was not a big name manager Jose Mourinho when uh, FC Porto took the took the point on him. He was not a big name manager. I mean, he was just the manager. I mean, look at Zinedine Zidane and Real Madrid. Look at Pep Guardiola, Barcelona. Before they were in those jobs, they were not big name managers. So if there's a sporting director who understands what he wants, he might just hire a random run of the mill manager that no one really knows about. By the time the person's work starts getting seen, they understand why he was hired in the first place. So it's not just about always getting a big name manager in football. I mean, at times it can be like that. But the truth is that if there is a sporting director who understands what he's doing, who has a fair idea of what he wants, getting that manager would be like the second thing or the third thing on his list of priorities. And once the sporting director is there, the groundwork is established, the players would just flow in. The players might not really be the best of names or the biggest of names, but together they would form a unit that would really, really cause problems in the league and in Europe. All right, moving away from that quickly, I, I really like the fact that we are hearing reports that City are already preparing for life after Pep Guardiola. And we're hearing one man has a lot of fans right there at the Etihad Stadium. That man couldn't do quite well with Liverpool. They spent a lot of money and they didn't really do quite well with Liverpool. Went to Scotland to wash his image and they even left Scotland on the verge of uh, <laughs> making history. <laughs> yeah, he literally went to wash his image right there in Scotland. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I keep saying this. <laughs> so, and I remember that same man came to England and I kept saying then that he has something to prove. Now we're hearing that same man might just be the one that has been lined up, that has been anointed to take over when Pep Guardiola leaves Manchester City. What, what do you say about this? Remember this man was once put in charge of a lot of money and he messed it up. There's a lot of money to throw around right there at City. Would it be the right man to replace Pep Guardiola? I'm talking about Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, you know, when you say when, when is actually a big thing. Let's say if, because a lot of people think Pepadula might leave City in 2023. I, I don't think he I don't think he will. Because if he leaves City, where do you go? I mean, he's still gonna be in his fifties. Is he he's going to international football? Yeah, is he gonna forgo the glory of going against your club week in, week out for going against the, the Shams every two years? I mean, what exactly is the I'm big picture? <laughs> you know what is the what is the long term aim? You know, but then for for Pep Guardiola, it's going to be interesting to see what he does. And I think for Manchester City, getting a manager is not going to give them too much of a headache because a lot of managers you know they have the funds, and for most managers, that's what they want. And secondly, like I said before, they have a structure. 
a working structure. Now, not every manager is Pep Adeola. Before Pep Adeola, they had won the league with Manuel Pellegrini. They had won the league cup with Manuel Pellegrini. They had won the league with Roberto Mancini. They had won the FA Cup with Roberto Mancini. They had won Community Shield. So it's not like this is the first time they'll be winning any of those trophies. But then, how long and how consistent were those managers? Not consistent and not for long. I mean, I think Guardiola is the city manager with the most wins already. You know, and he was there in 2016. So by seven years, it will be by far and away the longest he has ever worked. And it would even be double the number of years or half the number of years he has worked in his career because he was at Barca for four years. He took a break and then he was at Bayern for three years and then he went straight to England. So that's seven years in Germany or seven years rather in, in Spain and Germany. And by 2023, it would be his seventh year in England. And to be honest with him, he has he has won a fair bit. I mean, three or four Premier League trophies, a lot of Carabao Cups and FA Cups. I mean, with Guardiola comes Cups. But then whether they would find a manager like Pep Guardiola is another question. Because Guardiola is one of those few managers that continually has that desire to win. And he finds new ways to do so. It's not enough to throw money. I mean, under Manuel Pellegrini, they threw money. Under Roberto Mancini, they threw money. But then what was significant was that on both title triumphs, they both came on the last day. They both came, that's the last day of the season, not like the last day, last day when Jesus comes, you know. They were both in like their circumstances towards the end. And it was looking like neither of them would win it before they eventually came back to win it, you know. It was kind of more dramatic, but then it was not like title wins i think apart from the one where he got to 98 points and still did it to win it by one point because liverpool were also otherworldly others have been fairly comfortable fairly routine by december january we knew these guys are just storming to the title it's a procession already you know so that's the difference between galila and most managers you know another manager who also comes close or who also does something like that before the fans of the same manager will come on me is Alex Ferguson. You know, he's also very, very good at you know, leading league processions and he knows how to do it very well. Antonio Conte is also a manager that is like that, but then you think he wouldn't really fit into that city mode. And one thing that Brendan Rogers has going in his favor is that he has successfully watched his image in Scotland and heading back to England. I remember very nice, he was hired, we had this conversation. He treble treble at Celtic or being in the Premier League with Leicester City. And I remember how we're all just talking about it from different yeah. angles. Under him, they've managed the semblance of consistency and they've not had a deep squad that has enabled them really compete because they start the season very, very well. By the end of the season, the bulk of the squad is worn out and that's why we're always seeing them losing uh, their Champions League places. So if Brendan Royal was in a team like Manchester City that can afford to give him two 11s that would really be in the top four, then he could do he could do a lot better. And you know, you look around the league, you look around Europe, what managers are there? You know, if say Per Adventure, uh Espirito Santo loses his job, Mauricio Pochettino loses his job, and then Pochettino goes back to Spurs, and they probably say Zidane heads to PSG and Nuno just gets appointed at some particular random place, you know. There are really no managers of the highest of levels. Who you would appoint right now if you were a city because most of them either locked up in jobs or 
they're just around the same level. After Pereira and probably Jurgen Klopp and maybe Thomas Tuchel, the other managers, uh, with all due respect to Jose Mourinho, they step below, and that's just what they are right now, whether we like it or not. So for for Brendan Rodgers, it's going to be a second for me at the top level because. The other time, Liverpool, although he was good and although he helped bring the best out of Steven Gerrard and Luis Suarez, Felipe Coutinho, Daniel Sturridge, his defence were shambles, were huge, huge shambles. But then, with his time at Celtic, he has changed that. With his time at Leicester City, he has also proven to be quite adept at you know, mixing and matching. You know, not all just gung-ho. There's the element of counter-attack, there's the element of surprise, there's the element of possession. And you know, we just flame go football generally, and we have seen what he has done with our own cinema and Kells, you know, kind of like revitalized his career, you know, even extending Jamie Vardy's career. So that's also one thing we have to give credit to um, Brendan Rogers for. Not all managers can be like that. And not all managers can say they brought the best out of nearly every player they have worked with. And that's one thing we have to give Brendan Rogers credit for. I mean, very few people remember that Brendan Rogers got into Premier League with Swansea. And he had the media calling his team Swansea Lona because of how well they were playing. You know, Swansea actually ended seventh in I think their first season where Joe Allen was. He got the nickname of the Welsh Pelo, you know, the Welsh Javi, the Welsh everything because of how well he was playing the role and how well Brendan Rogers' team were organized. And, you know, a lot of them got big moves off of that season on Swansea, Brendan Rogers himself included, you know. And the following season, I think they were with another manager. I think they went down or something. Michael Lodrop. You know? Yeah, Michael Lodrop. So, because of the kind of um, difference Michael Lodrop board... got the best of Mitchell. <laughs> and Mitchell is yeah, yeah. Alan's, Alan's idol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The streets, I, I saw that tweet, we realized that the streets, you know, I forget. I was like, wait, hold up, hold up. <laughs> I remember when news came out that Michu was Haaland's idol, and at that time we were all struggling. Like, what what exactly is Alan Holland? What is he? Is he is he a goal scoring machine? Is he boom and bust? Is he one season wonder? Does he have huge bust potential? And it just came out like randomly out of the blue. Haaland just tweets, "The street will never forget Michu," and we're like, "Hold up." Michu is his role model, his <laughs> idol. Are we sure we're not looking at a one season wonder here? So, so those things can, can really can really be weird. And yeah, yeah, we have to give credit to uh, Michu for inspiring Helen Holland because if he never had that one season wonder, who knows? We might never have Helen Holland. But then that's uh, on the funny side. And for uh, for Brendan Rodgers, if he eventually gets appointed by Manchester City, it will be interesting to see what he does because potentially, potentially. Jurgen Klopp might also walk away from Liverpool in 2024. I mean, after his great nemesis has finally departed and he looks around like, yeah, I have won, but at what cost? You know, that that huge meme from Thanos, where he's like, yeah, I've conquered, but then at what cost? You know, I mean, Kryptonite is gone. What is someone looking for in the planet among fellow humans? He might just walk away and then... Hold on, still, I'm still plotting my conspiracy theory. And then Steven Gerrard gets appointed by, by Liverpool. And then the Liverpool-Man City thing takes a huge twist. And it changes from Guardiola club going against each other to students and master going against each other with club and, uh, sorry, with Rogers and Gerrard at City and Liverpool respectively. And I can imagine uh, Rogers taking a City side to Liverpool and then they're securing a famous victory at Anfield. And 
pumping his fist and, and shining his teeth and who are questioning why he ever was revered by those at Anfield. You know, it's one of those funny things that, that really could happen, but for now, we, we don't really know how, how it would look like. All right, I think we are getting used to these conspiracies. We should have them every episode of this show. So ju- just as we close, we're having the battle of the young guns right there in the NFL. Justin Herbert versus Lama Jackson for Justin Herbert is really done well for himself. Lama Jackson himself is doing very well at the moment. So briefly, let's talk about uh, what happens in that game, uh, the changes and the Ravens in the NFL as we close. Yeah, I mean, that's the game for the weekend. It definitely is one to be very, very excited about. Two young quarterbacks who have both shown MVP caliber games. I mean, their last game for Lama Jackson was just mental. He threw for 442 yards. Four touchdowns, no interceptions. First quarterback ever to do all of that and still have an 86% accuracy. You know, he was he was 37 or 43 on his passes. And for someone who has always been talking about as he cannot throw, he cannot throw. That was a very, very huge win for him. And for the Chargers, Justin Herbert is trying to do what Lamar Jackson himself has done prior, which is win the MVP in your second year in the league, following the footsteps of another AFC quarterback, uh, Patrick Mahomes. And Justin Herbert and the Chargers have actually done a lot of good work right there in LA. You know, they're both 4-1, doing very, very, very well. I remember the game between Chargers and Chiefs and everyone was wondering, is Justin Herbert just about to out Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes? Because he was doing the things we expect from Patrick, you know, the balls, the runs, you know, the passes and the celebrations. Everything was just typical of Patrick Mahomes and he outperformed Mahomes in that job and this is another job. Both show uh, themselves as the quarterback of the future, you know, who could really take over in that battle of the dynasties and we really think that it could be a good game and I hope that as much as it has been talked about that they, they really live up uh, to their expectation. But then for, for Lamar Jackson, he also has to prove that what he has done in the last two games was not a fluke. Because there are people questioning whether that was a fluke, whether it's repeatable, whether it's something he can continue to do. And this is the game to do just that. All right, so that would just draw the curtains on the mighty episode of the Scoreboard Podcast. I'm sure you've enjoyed everything we've talked about on this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Masha, from the other part of the world, analyzing issues on this episode of the show. Uh, thank you very much, Harold. It's been my pleasure talking about it. And I hope by this time of the episode, those listening would have had as much joy as we did. We'll return again next week for a brand new episode of the podcast. Until then, my name is Ola Lua. Do enjoy yourself.